Hello, I'm Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast to get you thinking about biblical and historical Christianity, to inspire you to follow Christ, and to convict you to lead a consecrated life. Apologetics, Part 6, Historical Jesus. There was a time when I didn't need to establish the fact that Jesus existed, but times are a-changing, and so now we have a whole lecture on just the question, did Jesus exist? I don't know if you've ever heard of the Jesus mythicists, but they teach that Jesus never existed and that he's a myth. I wonder how you would go about debunking this claim. Are you aware of the historical sources that mentioned Jesus in early Christianity? In this lecture, you'll learn what's out there from biblical authors, historians, and even hostile witnesses. The cumulative case for the historicity of Jesus of Nazareth is nothing short of staggering. If you would like to take this class for credit, please contact the Atlanta Bible College so you can register and do the necessary work for a grade. Here now is Apologetics Part 6, The Historical Jesus. I'm titling this lecture, The Historical Jesus. It initiates a series of lectures on Jesus, including The Historical Jesus and Resurrection Evidence Part 1, Resurrection Evidence Part 2. Did you know that there are people in our world that believe Jesus never existed? They're called mythicists. And they, like uh, Robert Price, for example, and uh, who's that really s- smart atheist guy? Uh, Richard Carrier is an, a mythicist. But uh, the, uh, the mythicists argue that Jesus is a myth. Anybody heard of the movie Religulous? Yeah. Uh, where they try to establish that the Jesus idea came from mythology based on other religions, like Egyptian mythology and so on, and that's where the whole idea of resurrection came from, or the virgin birth, or whatever. So, I thought I would give you the historical evidence for Jesus' existence, and then go in to talk about arguments for his resurrection tomorrow, okay? So, initially I was thinking I should just give you sources outside of the Bible that prove Jesus' existence. And then I was thinking to myself, that's already admitting that the Bible is a lousy historical source. And I think the Bible's a great historical source. So why should I dance to their music when I can dance to my own or something? So I'm going to use the Bible as a source because the Bible is a phenomenal source. Do you know that the Bible's not a book? It's a collection of 66 books, right? And so being that the Bible is a library, not a book, technically speaking, I know we bind it together into one book, but uh, these books originate separately from, in, from each other. We can use the Bible as multiple sources f- pointing to Jesus' existence. The earliest sources we have, and this is uh, something that's going to come up repeatedly, is 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4. This is that part where Paul talks to the Corinthians. He says, I deliver to you what I also received, that... Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day and that he appeared to Cephas and the brethren and that he appeared to so on and so forth and he lists off the resurrection appearances of Jesus. And so this is, we call it pre-Pauline because Paul's 
delivering to the Corinthians what Paul received from someone else, some earlier follower of Jesus. This is actually a statement about Jesus that dates to before Paul. Now, Paul wrote between 51 and 62. Jesus, his resurrection, we date to somewhere in the early 30s. It has to be between 26 and 36 for sure, but most people would place it between 31 and 33, roughly speaking. We don't actually know exactly what year it was. So we have a source before 51, that's when Paul begins writing these letters, and after 33 that points to a historical Jesus as an actual person that walked on, on this earth and that actually died and was raised. We'll get into that more tomorrow. Philippians 2, 6 through 10 is also pre-Pauline. In all likelihood, it's a quotation from somewhere else. Some scholars argue that it is actually Paul's own statement, but I think the general consensus among Paul scholars is that that it's called Carmen Christi, the Song of Christ, uh, from Philippians 2, 6 through 10 is pre-Paul. But anyhow, those are two examples of, you know, they're embedded in the Bible, but they're super early sources that mention Jesus. That's my point, okay? So that's our earliest stuff. We don't have years on it, but we know it's before 51, because in 51 is when Paul begins writing his letters, okay? Our next source is Paul himself. Paul dies between 62 and 68. It's a little bit difficult to nail it down exactly. Uh, I probably should just do some more research to get you a more definitive date. I personally lean towards 64, <laughs> but uh, I don't want to get like weighed down with all that right now. The point is, Paul did die in Rome in the 60s, and what we can do with Paul, because Paul is the first part of the New Testament we have, by the way. Did you know that? It was written before a lot of the other parts. Within 20 to 30 years after the death of Jesus, we get the following sketch from the writings of Paul. We get that Jesus was born of a woman. Huh. Sounds like a historical person to me. He had disciples. He had brothers. We get the Lord's Supper where Jesus says, this is my body, eat in remembrance of me, right? This is my, the blood of, my, of the new covenant and so on. We get the fact that Jesus was crucified, that he was put to death by Jews, that he was buried, that he was raised from the dead and ascended into heaven. All of those facts about Jesus we're getting from our earliest written documents that we have in existence on planet Earth relating to Jesus, which is the uh, epistles of Paul, other than those other two that I mentioned, and possibly a couple more little snippets that he quotes other people. All right? You don't need to write down the scripture references, but just keep in mind that Paul is an early source that we have, and he testifies about the historical Jesus. Now, Paul could be crazy, or he could be making stuff up. That's possible, right? But it, it certainly seems like he's being sincere, if you read his epistles. It, he doesn't seem to talk about things as if a crazy person. <laughs> and that's a very uncharitable reading, by the way, if you, if you do read it that way. All right, next up we have James. James died in 62, so he wrote before 62. He's a slave of Jesus. He calls Jesus Lord and Messiah. He believes Jesus is coming back, his coming is near. Um, we don't get much about the historical Jesus from James, but we do get those little snippets. Uh, James is the brother of Jesus, as opposed to the other James that got killed by um, Herod. And then we have Peter. Peter dies in Rome around the same time as the Apostle Paul. 
in the 60s as well, 64 to 68. Um, and so Peter talks about Christ. Peter says that Christ suffered. He says that Christ was sinless, that he bore our sins, that he did not revile. That's a historical thing. Did Paul or did Jesus get crucified? Peter's going to say, yes, I was there. I saw it when he was. Well, he didn't actually attend the crucifixion, but he, you know, he was there at the at the court. You know what I mean? And then he ran away. And um, Peter is going to say Jesus did not revile. He did not utter threats when he was being crucified. Peter says he's an eyewitness to his majesty, which is talking about the transfiguration. And then we have Brother Jude. Jude says he's a slave of Jesus. He mentions him a few times, but it's not really historical. So we're just going to kind of skip over Jude. Um, and then we go to Mark. Mark has tons of stuff about Jesus, right? Mark writes in the 60s. He got his gospel from Peter. I'm going to show you the early Christian quote where how we know that Mark... You know, Mark wasn't an apostle, right? Mark was kind of a sketchy missionary that failed. He originally comes on the scene traveling with Paul and Barnabas on Paul's first missionary trip, right? And they go to that island of, was it Cyprus? And they preach through the island. They get to the end of the island and they preach to Sergius Paulus, the proconsul, and he's like very impressed by what Paul and Barnabas are doing. And then they decide, hey, let's go to Turkey. Although in their time it was called something else. And they, uh, they sail to what we call today Turkey. And Mark, he just bails on them. And then later on, when they want to do the second missionary trip, Paul's like, we're not, I'm not taking Mark. And Barnabas, Barnabas is like, you should take Mark. And Paul's like, I'm not taking Mark. And it says when there was a sharp disagreement between Paul and Barnabas over Mark, they split ways. And Barnabas went back to the island with Mark. And Paul grabbed Silas and went north on foot. Right? So that's how Mark gets on the scene. And later on, we, we see Paul mentioning Mark in a positive way. So obviously they patch things up. But Mark ends up becoming somebody that works with Peter in Rome. And I'll show you that quote later. And that makes sense, right? Because if you read the Gospel of Mark, you have a lot of Peter stuff in there, right? Uh, he's kind of like the main player. But anyhow, Mark testifies that Jesus was a miracle worker. He has some sayings of Jesus. The Passion Narrative is the part where it's the last week and he gets asked some stumper questions and then gets in trouble and betrayed and crucified. Um, he, had, he does state the resurrection. Sometimes people say that Mark doesn't have the resurrection. Mark does have the resurrection. It's not narrated the same as in Matthew and Luke, but it is stated uh, that Jesus is raised. Um, and you have Simon of Cyrene, uh, and I, I mentioned that before. But All right. Matthew is sometime after Mark. Luke is sometime after Mark. Anybody that tells you they know when the Gospels were written, for sure, is making it up. Okay? Nobody knows when the Gospels were written. We have good reason to believe they're all in the first century, and basically everyone agrees with that these days, okay? But we don't know exactly when they were written. Um, typically, liberal scholars want to date the Gospels after the destruction of Jerusalem because they can't imagine a world in which Jesus predicts the future, right? And so their presupposition of no miracles ever being able to happen colors their history so that they're going to date things later. Whereas Bible-believing people or miracle-believing people have no trouble dating the Gospels earlier because why couldn't Jesus predict the future if there is a God in heaven who can 
revealed to him when these things are going to happen, right? All right, so anyhow, Matthew gives us some info about Jesus. Uh, Matthew tells us, uh, Matthew's an eyewitness. He tells us the birth narrative. I don't think he was an eyewitness of the birth, uh, but he does have a birth narrative talking about how Jesus was born. You know, historical people are born. Mythical people are made up, right? Uh, Matthew talks about, he gives you a ton of teachings of Jesus, right? And miracles, passion narrative, resurrection appearances. And then Luke also. Um, Luke is really great because he gives us his methodology. In the, in the beginning of Luke, what Luke does is he's like, hey, this is what I did to produce this gospel. I went around, I found eyewitnesses, and I wrote down exactly what happened in chronological order. That's what he says he's doing. So take it or leave it. He's not trying to make up a mythical story to make you feel good. He thinks he's trying to get the exact truth and report it to Theophilus, who's the person he wrote the gospel in dedication to. So Luke is an investigator. He has a birth narrative. He has extensive teachings of Jesus, uh, some that are the same as Mark, some that are the same as Matthew, and then some in addition that aren't included in any of the other gospels at all, especially between chapters 9 and 19, like the Good Samaritan. You don't find that anywhere else. The rich man of Lazarus, you don't find that anywhere else. That's uh, chapter 16. Luke gives us lots of historical information about Jesus. In Luke, Jesus is always at a dinner party. He has passion narrative, resurrection appearances. Ascension is actually in Luke as well. And there's continuity with Acts, because Luke wrote Acts as well. Hebrews is sometime after 62 and before 70. That's where I would date Hebrews. Hebrews talks as if the temple is still functioning. The temple was destroyed in 70. So that's why I'm going to date Hebrews before 70. Hebrews is not really concerned too much about the historical Jesus. Hebrews is much more focused on the theology, making the point that Jesus is superior to angels, superior to Moses, superior to Aaron, because he's a priest after Melchizedek. He's superior to the, his, his covenant is superior to the old covenant. He has better promises and so on. So those are all theological points, but he does testify to the historical fact that Jesus died and that Jesus was tempted, yet he did not sin, and that Jesus was made like his brethren in all things. So those are little snippets about the historical Jesus that the writer of Hebrews tells us about. Uh, then we have Brother John here. Uh, John, people usually date to sometime before the year 100. What's the first thing, first thing it says here about John? He was an eyewitness, right? Who was the other eyewitness? Yeah, Matthew. Mark got it from Peter. Luke got it from interviewing eyewitnesses. So it's really only Matthew and John that are eyewitnesses. And if you want to know more about that, read Jesus and the Eyewitnesses by Richard Bauckham. John also tells us about a pre-ministry miracle of Jesus, attending festivals. In John, Jesus is self-revelatory. He gives all these statements about himself as opposed to just talking about kingdom of God. Yes, some resurrection appearances. Some people think that John's before 100. Yeah. Most people date it to the 90s. Some people date it crazy early. Some people date it to the 60s or even earlier. I mean, the simple fact is we don't know when these things were written. They didn't contain dates. People have to guess based on arguments that they make. Nobody who's, who makes these arguments 
is able to prove beyond doubt that that's really when it happened, okay? As opposed to Flavius Josephus, we tend to know him a lot better because he was there. Okay, so that John's our, our last witness to the historical Jesus apart or within the Bible itself, okay? So how many, how many do we have there? Okay, nine. All right, so those are nine witnesses to the, within the first century itself, within the first hundred years of, you know, this era, right, that there was such a person as Jesus, right? So you can't, an atheist can't come along and just be like, oh, that's the Bible. No, don't let them get away with that. It's not just the Bible. Those are nine, what's that? Ten independent witnesses, Right? I mean, there are some dependencies between them, but there are 10 different witnesses to the fact that there was a person named Jesus. That's before we get outside the Bible. Now let's go outside the Bible and see what we find. Flavius Josephus. That's not a book in the Bible, right? Jamie? It's not in your Bible. Right. It's not in my Bible. It's after Titus. It's after Titus. Uh, Flavius Josephus was a first non-Christian to write about Jesus. What religion do you think he was? He was Jewish, yeah. And he was a historian. Josephus famously fought in the Great War, the first Jewish uh, revolution from the year 66 to 74. He was there. And uh, he got captured and he just was like, ah, I think I'm going to give up. Go on the Roman side and work for them as a translator and then I'm going to survive. And he did. And so then he wrote these histories of the war of the Jews and history of his whole people, ancient um, Jews, from the beginning of creation up until his own time. So he was a big-time writer. And um, the Jews didn't like him too much, so Christians ended up copying his books and preserving them, which is why we have them today. But he's not a Christian. But he does mention some Christian stuff, which is totally fascinating, right? Um, so this is from his book... Um, Antiquities of the Jews, Book 20, chapters 199 to 201. And uh, you don't have to write that down, but this is Josephus, and this is what he says. Jamie, could you read the yellow? Festus was now dead, and Albinus was but upon the road, so he assembled the Sanhedrin of Judges and brought before them the brother of Jesus, who was called Christ, whose name was James and some others, or some of his and when he had formed an accusation against them as breakers of the law, he delivered them to be stoned. So this is a non-Christian source. It's an, it's an external, extra-biblical source that mentions not only James, the brother of Jesus, but Jesus himself as a historical person in the first century. Okay? Who was called Christ. Yeah, right. That's pretty specific, right? You could see, see, too, he's not really interested in Jesus or James. He's really interested in Festus and Albinus. That's what he's talking about. And he's like, yeah, you know, Albinus was on the road. Festus is now dead. Albinus is on the road. Um, this other guy, Ananus, assembled the Sanhedrin, and he brought an accusation against the brother of Jesus, who's called Christ, whose name was James. So you see, James is kind of like known as being the brother of Jesus who was called the Messiah by these like weirdo Christians, right? But what's so cool about this is it's a hostile witness. It's not a witness from a Christian background, but it testifies to the historicity of an actual Jesus, 
right, and of an actual James. Side note, there is a ossuary they found that says James, the brother of Jesus on it. Do you know what an ossuary is? It's a bone box. The ancient Jewish practice of burial included putting a dead person in a tomb or in a cave. It was a cave big enough to fit multiple people. Okay, so it was like a walk-in. We have walk-in closets. They had walk-in tombs. Okay, and you know you put the rock in there. You know what I'm talking about, right? So that you walk in, you put the dead person there, you leave that person there, you come back a year later. Okay, you come back a year later. What's left? Just the bones. And so now the bones are sitting there, and so you get an ossuary, which is a limestone box about this big by this big by this tall. It needs to be as wide as your skull and as long as your femur. And what you do is you put all the bones in this bone box called an ossuary, put the lid on it, and then shelve it in the corner of the cave and scrape on the side who it was. And then you can use the same tomb for lots of family members because tombs are expensive, land is expensive, people are generally rather poor, right? And so that was a standard procedure for burial in the first century because limestone was crazy cheap because Herod the Great had done all these renovations and there were all these quarries and there was all this extra limestone around. So people were just going nuts for it. It was just like a trend for a little while. So anyhow, they found one. There was this dude, he was digging in his backyard, probably digging a garden in Jerusalem. And as happens in Jerusalem all the time, the shovel went thud. And he's like, oh no. You know, you're, and they're not excited when that happens because as soon as the antiquities people find out, the archeologists find out, you lose your property, they do an excavation, it's a big hassle, right? So what does he do? He unearths this bone box and he sells it on the black market, right? And he, he can't read what's on the side of it anyhow. It's scratched in, in uh, you know, sloppy handwriting. He, you try to read somebody's handwriting, it's, it's difficult, especially when it's scratched into the side of this thing and it's, it's just not, not easy to read. But anyhow, it says, James, the brother of Jesus on this box. So anyhow, eventually they found it, and there's this big controversy. Is this genuine, or is it a fake? Is it really James, or is it, you know, and I don't want to get into all that, but I will say, if you're interested in researching the James ossuary, check out Ben Witherington's talk about it. Ben Witherington III, who uh, he has this whole lecture on the James ossuary, and he's a big-time defender of it. But that's not really what we're talking about. We're talking about textual sources, and textually speaking, we have Josephus, who clearly testifies that there was such a person named James, and he was the brother of Jesus who was called the Christ. Josephus also tells us all about Pilate. So we know from an external, non-Christian source that there was such a person as Pilate, who really lived, and he was a big jerk, it turns out, based on Josephus' descriptions of Pilate. He talks about how Pilate wanted to introduce Caesar's effigies, which were upon the ensigns. Right? He wanted to bring in these signs that had Caesar's image on them, and how there was a revolt, and how all the people clamored and cried out, and they said, you can't bring these images into this holy city. God says you will not make an image, you will not bow down to it. We cannot have these images of Caesar in our city. And so Pilate says, you're going to have these images of Caesar in the city because we have these images of Caesar in every city in the Roman Empire. Who do you think you are? And so what did the people do? 
He threatened their punishment should be no less than immediate death unless they would stop disturbing him and go their ways home. But they threw themselves upon the ground, laid their necks bare, and said they would take their death very willingly rather than the wisdom of their laws should be transgressed, upon which Pilate was deeply affected with their firm resolution to keep their laws inviolable and presently commanded the images to be carried back from Jerusalem to Caesarea. You only get that in Josephus. It's not in the Bible, right? But he's a historian, and he's talking about what happened. And then he talks about this whole issue with Pilate building an aqueduct. And this time, the people were really mad because he took money from the temple treasury to build the aqueduct. And everyone revolted. And you know what happened this time? You won't believe it unless I read it to you. This is what he did. So he outfitted a great number of his soldiers in their clothes who carried daggers under their garments and sent them to a place where they might surround them. So he bade the Jews himself go away, but they boldly casting reproaches upon him, he gave the soldiers that signal which he had before agreed upon, who laid upon them much greater blows than Pilate had commanded them, and equally punished those who were tumultuous and those who were not, nor did they spare them in the least. And since the people were unarmed and were caught by men prepared for what they were about to do, there were a great number of them slain by this means, and others of them ran away wounded, and thus an end was put to this sedition. So the first time, the people revolt, and they're like, just kill us. We can't, we can't let you break our laws. And Pilate's like, wow, these people are really committed, so let's just cancel that. And then this other time, they're like, don't you use our temple treasury money to build this aqueduct. And Pilate's like, all right, soldiers, come here. Take this dagger, hide it, I'll give you the signal. And he has his soldiers beat the tar out of everyone there and kill a bunch of people. Right? So Pilate, like I said, was a jerk. And you kind of get that impression when you read the Passion narratives, right? Because the Jews are bringing Jesus to Pilate, and they're like, we want you to kill him. Pilate's like, why should I kill him? He doesn't like them. He's like, why should I kill him for you? It's your law. You know, you get that nastiness coming out a little bit. And they outmaneuver him. That's how they get them to kill Jesus, right? They say, look, he claims to be a king, and only Caesar is the king. You have to do something, Pilate. And that's how they were able to get Pilate to kill Jesus. Pilate just doesn't like him. And then, right in the midst of talking about Pilate, Josephus just rolls right into, now there was about this time, Jesus, a wise man, if it be lawful to call him a man, for he was a doer of wonderful works, a teacher of such men as received the truth with pleasure. He drew over to him both many of the Jews and many of the Gentiles. He was the Christ. And when Pilate, at the suggestion of the principal men among us, had condemned him, to the cross, those that loved him at the first did not forsake him, for he appeared to them alive again the third day, because the divine prophets had foretold these and 10,000 other wonderful things concerning him, and the sect of Christians so named from him are not extinct at this day. So that statement about Jesus seems a little overblown. It seems a little too good to be true. So scholars have studied Josephus, and they, they call this basically an interpolation. Do you know that? Do you know that word, interpolation? Interpolation. That's where you add stuff in, right? This is a modern scholarly reconstruction of what Josephus actually said. Josephus wasn't a Christian. There's no way he called Jesus the Christ. There's no way he said if he was ever even a man. And there's no way he said 10,000 other things that he did in the divine... Pro you know, so basically... What ended up happening is you had Christian scribes who were preserving Josephus, 
and they're embellishing, adding little bits of information into Josephus so that the copies we have today have these interpolations. So what scholars do, whether Christian or atheist, everyone agrees that this has happened. They reconstruct it as follows. And they say that this is actually what Josephus wrote before some nasty monks got in there and messed around. About this time there lived Jesus, a wise man. For he was one who wrought surprising feats and was a teacher of such people as accept the truth gladly. He won over many Jews and many of the Greeks. When Pilate, upon hearing him accused by men of the highest standing among us, had condemned him to be crucified, those who had in the first place come to love him did not give up their affection for him, and the tribe of Christians so called after him exists still to this day. Or I'm not sure what I did there. Typo. But you see the difference between the two? When you read this construction, this reconstruction of Josephus, his testimonium, Flavium, what you see is an outsider perspective. Yeah, there was this guy, Jesus, he was a wise man. He did some surprising stuff. He taught people. He won over some Jews, some Greeks, but Pilate killed him. You know what I mean? Like, it's just sort of like the basics. And so this is evidence that there actually was a Jesus I showed you the other one anyhow that doesn't have any monkeying around. So either way, we have Josephus as an external witness to the historicity of Jesus. All right. Plenty the Younger. Anno Domini 111. His uncle, Plenty the Elder, was a famous Roman administrator and natural scientist. He died in a ship observing the 79 eruption of Mount Vesuvius. He got too close. Plenty the Younger carried on correspondence with Trajan, the emperor, who liked to micromanage everything. And so Pliny was the governor of Bithynia Pontus, and he's dealing with some Christians, and he's trying to figure out what to do. So he writes to the emperor. You know, one of the things he, he asked the emperor, some people in his area wanted to have a fire department. Obviously not the same kind of fire department we have today, because they didn't have trucks and like hoses and fire hydrants, you know, but it would be a group of people committed to putting out fires when they went off in the region, okay? He asked Trajan for permission to have a fire department, and Trajan says no, absolutely not. Social gatherings like that are nothing more than secret ways for people to gather and foment rebellion against us. So no fire department. And then Pliny asked Trajan, what about these Christians? You know, like, I found these Christians. They're really weird people, and I tortured them, and I got, I got this information about them. What should I do with these Christians? And Trajan writes back, don't accept anonymous accusations, but if somebody is accused of being a Christian and they won't deny Christ, then kill them. That's the official declaration of the Roman emperor to Pliny the governor. So this is actually what Pliny wrote to Trajan. Now you have to take into consideration this is an external, it's a non-Christian, hostile witness to uh, what Christianity is. Whose turn do we have here? Jacob. I've asked them if they're Christians and if they admit it, I repeat the question a second and third time with the warning of the punishment awaiting them. If they persist, I order them to be led away for execution or whatever the nature of their admission, I'm convinced of their stubbornness and unshakable uh, obstinacy ought not go unpunished. They also declared the sum total of their guilt or error, error amounted to no more than this. 
They had met regularly before dawn on a fixed day to chant verses alternatively amongst themselves in honor of Christ as if to be a god, uh, and also to bind themselves by oath, not for any criminal purpose, but to abstain from theft, robbery, and adultery. This made me decide that it was all the more necessary to extract the truth by torture from two slave women whom they called deaconesses. I found nothing but a degenerate sort of cult carried to extravagant lengths. Is that unbelievable? Yes. So this is Pliny the Younger, a Roman governor, and he's like, yeah, there are these Christians, they're really weird, they sing songs to Christ, you know, he believes in all the gods, and you know, Roman emperors when they die are called gods, so if you have a being who's not on earth, he's just going to use the word God to refer to that person. So he's like, yeah, it's like they're singing these songs to Christ as if to a God. And what they do is they, they commit to not steal anything or commit adultery. And I don't really know what the deal is with them. I tortured a few of them, but I couldn't figure it out. But whatever their thing is, they're really stubborn. And there's nothing really, it's just a degenerate cult carried to extravagant lengths. There's a Roman perspective on early Christianity, right? Pretty cool, huh? I mean, pretty awful, but... Well, I probably didn't like them because they abstained from theft, robbery, and <laughs> <laughs> You just thought that was incidental. I don't think that's why you didn't like them. Yeah, this is, what, this is what makes plenty angry. They won't go back on their commitment, on their faith. See, early Christians had a real issue. We'll talk about this in church history. Because they believed Jesus was Lord, they didn't think they could call Caesar Lord, too. And they surely couldn't sacrifice to the gods or to Caesar. And that was the standard patriotic way that you showed loyalty to the empire, is you offer a pinch of incense, or you swear by the genius of Caesar, or you offer an actual sacrifice to Caesar, or to the empire, or to the goddess of um, Rome. These people are so stubborn and unshakable in their obstinacy, they won't do anything. They're like, we just follow Christ, man. Jesus is Lord. That's where our stake is in the ground. We cannot move. And that really freaks plenty out. So we tortured a few and killed them. Crazy, right? All right, next one up is Suetonius. Suetonius was a Roman historian. He wrote a book called The Lives of the Twelve Caesars, which you can buy today. He mentions this time when the Jews got kicked out of Rome because of some sort of disturbance. And he speaks of this person, Crestus. And people puzzle, like, is that Christus, which would be the Latin word for Christ, is it just a typo? Did you spell it wrong? Or is it really some person named Christus who's not related to Jesus? And we're not really sure. But this is the quote from Suetonius. He says, he banished from Rome, this is from Claudius 25, that's the source. Claudius 25. Claudius is the name of one of the Caesars, and this is chapter... 25 or paragraph 25. He banished from Rome all the Jews who were continually making disturbances at the instigation of one Crestus. And then in Nero 16, Suetonius says, he likewise, Nero likewise, inflicted punishments on the Christians, a sort of people who held a new and impious superstition. So what do we get from Suetonius? We get that there was somebody named Crestus that caused all kinds of trouble among Jews in Rome. Hmm. Hmm. What if you have some Jews that are preaching 
that the Christ has come, and other Jews who are like, you're crazy, man, and they're persecuting each other, kind of like the scenario we saw played out in every city Paul ever went to, right? And eventually that got to Rome, and there was controversy. That would explain it, right? And so in Nero 16, Nero is a later emperor, and the fire happened in 64, just so you, if you want the actual date for that. And there it says, he inflicted punishments on Christians. This is a result of the, the fire, which that's a church history thing. I'm not, I'm not here to tell you about the fire right now. Right, so Josephus was 93. He mentions James. He mentions Jesus. Plenty of the Younger is 111. He mentions an early group of Christians, and they're singing songs to Christ. Well, look, if there's no Christ, why are you singing songs to him? Uh, Suetonius possibly mentions Christ, although it could be Crestus or Christus. We're not really sure. But he certainly mentions Christians, and he is in the year 115. So we, we don't have some sort of myth, mythology developing slowly over time. We have a historical person and ripples of that person, both among his followers, which is the first ten sources, and then external people who are usually hostile witnesses. Then we have Tacitus here. Tacitus was a Roman historian who wrote a book called Annals. He was a Roman senator. He was born 25 years after Jesus died. And in the year 115, he wrote the following about Nero, the evil emperor. This is book 15, chapter 44 of the Annals of Tacitus. Melvin, could you read this part here? Nero fastened the yoke and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hate for their abominations called Christians by the populace. Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered an extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate, and the most mischievous superstitious. Thus checked for the moment again broke out not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but even in Rome, accordingly. An arrest was made was first made of all who pleaded guilty. Then upon their information, an immense multitude was convicted, not so much of the crime of firing the city as of hatred against mankind. Alright, so that's Tacitus. Tacitus talking about the Emperor Nero and how Nero used exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations called Christians. There is a rich history of our people that most of us have no idea about. Um, but look, Tacitus has no problem. He's a historian. He's like, yeah, back in the days of Nero, there were these Christians. He tortured them. They were followers of this guy named Christus, Christ. That's just a Latin way of saying Christ. So as far as Tacitus as a historian goes, Jesus is a historical figure, just like Nero is a historical figure. In fact, he's such a historical figure that he can confidently say that Christus suffered the extreme penalty. What's that? From a Roman perspective, public capital punishment is crucifixion. 
right? And that happened during the reign of Tiberius, another Roman emperor, at the hands of a procurator, Pontius Pilate. And he's like, yeah, and it was able to stamp out this ridiculous superstition for a little while, but eventually it broke out again, not only in Judea, so now we get a source as far as geography goes that Christus was somebody that suffered under Pontius Pilate in Judea. This is not the Bible. These are ancient external historical references. And that later on, this movement again spread even to Rome. And a bunch of people got in a lot of trouble. Bad stuff happened. Okay, Papias. I should mention this to you. So what historians have, do you have in your notes? You have Josephus. He's a Jewish historian, right? Who do you have after that? Pliny the Younger is not a historian. He's a what? Governor. He's a governor. And he's writing letters to the emperor, right? So for historians, we have Joe, and then who's next? Suetonius, and then after Suetonius? Tacitus. Tacitus. So we have one Jewish historian and two Roman historians, all mentioning Christ or early Christianity, or both. So Suetonius and Tacitus wrote about the fire of Nero being blamed on the Christians. That's what they're, that's what they're both talking about, this, this great fire that broke that broke out. Tacitus gets Pilate wrong. Pilate, in fact, was a prefect, not a procurator. Uh, but that's the sort of thing that historians get wrong all the time. You know, find differences between Roman titles of responsibility. When I get to the lecture on archaeology, I'll show you the Pilate stone, and that's how we know for sure Pilate was a prefect. Sadly, something went wrong with the recording at this time in the lecture, so I'm just going to dub in some more historical information for you that was left out. The next one up is Papias, who wrote around the year 130 and lived in Hierapolis. He famously preferred eyewitness accounts to written accounts, which by today's standards seems a little strange considering how textual our society is. But he wrote in his book, Expositions of the Sayings of the Lord, but I shall not hesitate to put down for you, along with my interpretations, whatsoever things I have at any time learned carefully from the elders and carefully remembered, guaranteeing their truth. For I did not, like the multitude, take pleasure in those that speak much, but in those that teach the truth, not in those that relate strange commandments, but in those that deliver the commandments given by the Lord to faith and springing from the truth itself. If, then... Any one came who had been a follower of the elders, I questioned him in regard to the words of the elders, what Andrew or what Peter said or what was said by Philip or by Thomas or by James or by John or by Matthew or by any of the other disciples of the Lord and what things Aristion and the presbyter John, the disciples of the Lord, say. For I did not think that what was to be gotten from books would profit me as much as what came from the living and abiding voice." So here you understand Papias's bias towards oral sources over against written sources because in the ancient world where copyrights don't exist and publishing is basically just up to anyone who handwrites a document, oral sources are better because you can ask them where they got their information from. Anybody could write a written source and claim it was written by whomever. 
oral sources you can talk to and you can ask them questions and you can check them out to see if they're accurate. So this is what's driving Papias behind everything else. It's this desire to, to get to accuracy, to understand what the historical Jesus was like. You can see in his way of speaking about Jesus that it's obvious he believes there was a real Jesus, there were real apostles. And Papias, being that he writes around 130, actually lived in a time when there were some people still alive who knew the original followers of Jesus. Papias also talks about the Gospel of Mark, which is probably the earliest of the Gospels. He says, Mark, having become the interpreter of Peter, wrote down accurately, though not in order, whatsoever he remembered of the things said or done by Christ. For he neither heard the Lord nor followed him, but afterward, as I said, he followed Peter, who adapted his teaching to the needs of of his hearers, but with no intention of giving a connected account of the Lord's discourses, so that Mark committed no error while he thus wrote some things as he remembered them. For he was careful of one thing, not to omit any of the things which he had heard, and not to state any of them falsely. Also, Papias mentions the Gospel of Matthew and says the following, So then Matthew wrote the oracles in the Hebrew language, and everyone interpreted them as he was able. So that's another fascinating little tidbit. We have never discovered a Hebrew Matthew. We have the Greek version of Matthew. Based on the manuscripts of Matthew that we have, there's no indication that the Greek Matthew we have is a translation from the Hebrew. So perhaps Matthew wrote one in Hebrew or Aramaic and then another in Greek, or maybe something else is going on here. I'm not really sure. But Papias, aside from what we think about what he says about Mark and Matthew, is clearly an early witness to the standard interpretation about Jesus that he was a historical figure. Next up, we have Quadratus, who wrote sometime between 117 and 124. He's sometimes called the first apologist. And what's fascinating about Quadratus is that he claims he knows some people who were healed by Jesus. We read this in Eusebius' church history book, quoting Quadratus. He says, The words of our Savior were always present, for they were true. Those who were healed, those who rose from the dead, those who were not only seen in the act of being healed or raised, but also always present, not merely when the Savior was living on earth, but also for a considerable time after his departure, so that some of them survived even to our own times. Notice how not showy this description is that Quadratus gives. It's sort of played down, but stating it matter-of-factly. As in, yeah, there were some people that Jesus healed, and they survived to our own time. So I'm not really sure what exactly that means. You know, maybe some of the Younger people that Jesus healed survived long enough, and Quadratus encountered some of them when he was a young man. I mean, if he's writing in the early 2nd century, it's very plausible that somebody healed in the 
um, first half of the first century could have survived that long. They would be maybe 50 years old or something like that when Quadratus was a young man. And think about it, though. If you were one of the ones Jesus healed, would you become part of the movement? Probably. So it makes good sense that some of these people stuck around and that if they were young, you know, they would live for a long time and be telling that story over and over again. Next, we have the Gospel of Thomas, another witness to the uh, historical Jesus. Sadly, this document does not focus on his deeds, but only his sayings or logia. And it's also rather late, sometime in the second century, and it has little emphasis on the historical Jesus. So we're not going to really consider much about the Gospel of Thomas. It's widely recognized to be a piece of Gnostic literature, which is a sect of Christians that had a very different view from what we read in the biblical Gospels. Next up, we have Mara Bar Serapion, and this document comes from between the years 73 and 200. That is quite a range. In other words, scholars just don't know when to place it. This document refers to the murder of Socrates, the burning of Pythagoras, and the execution of the wise king of the Jews as examples of wrongdoing that resulted in punishment by God. Here is that document now, the letter of Mara Bar Serapion. What are we to say when the wise are dragged by force by the hands of tyrants, and their wisdom is deprived of its freedom by slander, and they are plundered for their superior intelligence without the opportunity of making a defense? They are not wholly to be pitied. For what benefit did the Athenians obtain by putting Socrates to death, seeing that they received as retribution for it famine and pestilence? Or the people of Samos, by the burning of Pythagoras, seeing that in one hour, the whole of their country was covered with sand. Or the Jews, by the murder of their wise king, seeing that from that very time their kingdom was driven away from them. For with justice did God grant a recompense to the wisdom of all three of them. For the Athenians died by famine, and the people of Samos were covered by the sea without remedy, and the Jews, brought to desolation and expelled from their kingdom, are driven away into every land." So just the way this person talks, it doesn't really sound like they're a Christian, but it does clearly betray a belief in the historicity of Jesus. In other words, just as Socrates was an actual historical figure in Pythagoras, so was this wise king of the Jews. Next up, we have Lucian of Samosata, who wrote between 165 and 175, and he is a very early anti-Christian who wrote a book called The Passing of Peregrinus in chapter 11, we read, It was then that he learned the wondrous lore of the Christians by associating with their priests and scribes in Palestine. And how else could it be? In a trice he made them all look like children, for he was prophet, cult leader, head of the synagogue, and everything, all by himself. He interpreted and explained some of their books and even composed many, and they revered him as a god made use of him as a lawgiver, and set him down as a protector. Next, after that other, to be sure, whom they still worship, the man who was crucified in Palestine because he introduced this new cult into the world. 
This here is the earliest written critique of Christianity, and it assumes that there actually was a historical Christ. So once again, just the way he writes, this author betrays this assumption or belief that Jesus was a historical person. Next up, and last of all, we have the Talmud. The Babylonian Talmud was written around the year 500, and parts of it go back centuries before that, of course. And it's hard to tell what references are to Jesus because of the fact that they use various slang terms. For example, they'll say, Yeshu Hat Notsri, which sounds like Yeshua, the Nazarene. Um, then you have this other phrase, Ben Panthera, and this slander that uh, Jesus was really, his mother was really raped by a Roman soldier named Panthera, and that Jesus was the illegitimate child that way. But anyhow, we read in Sanhedrin 43a, on the eve of the Passover, Yeshu was hanged. For 40 days before the execution took place, a herald went forth and cried, He is going forth to be stoned because he has practiced sorcery and enticed Israel to apostasy. Anyone who can say anything in his favor, let him come forward and plead on his behalf. But since nothing was brought forward in his favor, he was hanged on the eve of the Passover. Allah retorted, Do you suppose that he was one for whom a defense could be made? Was he not mesit, which means enticer, concerning whom scripture says, Neither shalt thou spare, neither shalt thou conceal him? With Yeshu, however, it was different, for he was connected with the government, or in other words, royalty or influential. So it's a little difficult to discern if this is referring to Jesus or not. It sure sounds like it. And notice that, again, a hostile witness that clearly does not believe that Jesus was the legitimate Messiah does still believe that he was a historical figure and that on the Passover he was hanged. So there you have it. You have all of these sources, really an incredible trove of testimony to the historical Jesus from pre-Pauline quotations to the various biblical authors themselves, right through to a Jewish historian, two Roman historians, a Roman governor, and then several Christians from the second century, and then even hostile witnesses like Lucian and the Talmud, which is why I can confidently tell you that Jesus was a historical person, and that he did exist, and that he did live in this obscure part of the world during the first century. That's it for now. Next time, we'll look at the resurrection evidence for Jesus. If you enjoyed what you heard here, why not give Restitutio a five-star rating in iTunes or Stitcher? Doing so will help others find this podcast and inspire them to love God, follow Christ, and seek truth wherever it leads. Thanks for listening, and check us out online at restitutio.org, where you can find an archive of all the podcasts, as well as a bunch of articles and links to other resources. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.